Good afternoon, everyone. It is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to see you and be back. For those of you that might be new to our church here, uh, my name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor at New Life, and I've been I've been out for the past month on a little vacation and mini sabbatical, and uh, it is really wonderful uh, to be back. Uh, we had a wonderful time. Uh, on vacation. Uh, this is us in Florida. Part of our vacation was in New York. Part of it was in Florida. And uh, if I could describe uh, my time, I would use the famous words of Charles Dickens in his book, The Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And so whenever you are on vacation with small children, it is very unpredictable, and you're not, you don't know exactly what you're in, you're in for, but it was really wonderful. Uh, we, we spent some time at Disney, and I got to tell you, Disney uh, is the convergence of infinite joy and unbearable whining, just like, just together, just, and so I found myself rejoicing most when I saw other parents struggling, I was like, oh, I'm just, I made my day. I'm not the only one suffering here, you know? So uh, when I see the parents like this on the ride, waiting for the riding day, I say, this is fantastic. We are not rosy. Be of good cheer. We are not alone. And so um, it was really great. It is it's great to be back. And um, we've been on a series looking at the parables of Jesus. And if you want to get a sense of what the kingdom of God is like and what the gospel is, you go right to the parables. The parables get right to the heart of who Jesus is and what the kingdom of God is like. And what I love about the parables is this. They are accessible to everyone and yet incredibly bottomless. And so children can read and grasp the parables, and scholars spend entire lifetimes unearthing the wonderful truth uh, that is found in them as well. And what's interesting in the New Testament is in Mark 4.34, it says these words about Jesus, that he did not say anything to the people without using a parable. Very interesting. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. And so before we get into our passage, a very famous passage in the prodigal son, it's helpful to get a sense as to what this word parable is. Typically, when we think of the word parable, we think of an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that's a helpful definition, but it doesn't get to the full scope of the word because the parables that Jesus spoke, Jesus in no way speak in stories. And many of the parables have a distinctly earthly meaning, not just a heavenly meaning. And so the word in Hebrew is the word mashal. And the word has a range of meanings. When it says Jesus didn't speak apart from using a parable, it's speaking about a way that Jesus communicated. And so the word parable really speaks, has a range of meaning, covering riddles and fables and proverbs and metaphors and stories. And what the gospel writer is saying is that whenever Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, he was incredibly creative and use diverse means of communication. And the parables are given for two primary reasons. Number one, to offer words of grace. And number two, to offer words of judgment. Offer grace and offer judgment. And today we're going to look at the parable that we're all familiar with in the prodigal son. And I want to show you surprising words of grace and judgment. In Luke 15, beginning in verse number one, hear the word of the Lord. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats 
with them. And so Jesus goes on to tell a story. He actually tells three stories, a story about a lost sheep, a story about a lost coin, and then a story about a lost son, which should really be about two lost sons, and it goes like this. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Give me my inheritance. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what is going on? Your, fa- your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years. I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And my son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts. Make, Lord, this ancient story come to life in our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Whether you grew up in church or not, mostly everyone in our culture knows the story of the prodigal son. We often understand the story to be one of repentance, to be one of grace. It's a story that we can all relate to. But I want to show you uh, a different side of the story. And I want to, uh, at the beginning of this, let you know that the story is essentially about being dead and the importance of being dead. It actually should be called the parable of the two lost Sons. Jesus tells this parable because the religious leaders had some feelings and some thoughts about who he was hanging around with. 
And so in verse 1 in chapter 15, it says these words. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But when the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, in order to feel the full weight of that verse right there, we need to make the language a little bit more contemporary. Because the religious leaders were upset with Jesus that he was welcoming Tax collectors and sinners. Now, those two groups of people really don't mean much to us in 2017 in Queens, New York City. But for Jesus to hang around tax collectors and sinners was absolutely scandalous. Now, the Bible is given to comfort us, but the Bible is also given to confront us. The Bible is given to make us glad, and the Bible is given to make us upset. And in our our reading of the scriptures, if we're never upset, we're not reading the Bible the right way. And so I know I just got back from vacation, but let me upset you a little bit. (laughs) What if the passage said, now the liberal Democrats and LGBT activists were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Or it said, now the conservative Republicans and alt-right leaders were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Or what if it said, now the drug dealers and sexually immoral were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Or you can fill in the blank with whoever drives you crazy. The Pharisees are upset because Jesus makes space for people they think should be judged. And so to respond to their angst, to respond to their frustration, to respond to their observation, Jesus tells three stories. He says, which one of you, if you had 100 sheep and you lost one of them, would not go out and try to find the sheep? Or if you had 10 coins and you lost one of them, who wouldn't sweep the house to find this treasured uh, piece of uh, jewelry or whatever it was? And then Jesus goes on to tell the story of a lost son. Now, when we get to the portion of the lost son or the two lost sons, I want to invite you to hear this story from a different surprising perspective. We're talking about the surprise of the kingdom of God. I want you to hear from a different perspective. And so I want to unpack the, the, tell you the surprise ahead of time. And I want to unpack it because it seems that the story is not focused on a younger son who comes back to life. The story is more focused on the older son who refuses to be dead. The focus is not on a younger son who comes back to life. The story really is about the older son who refuses to be dead. And so this story is a story of grace and it's a story of judgment. Now, we know the story. Jesus says there's a father who had two sons, and the younger son commits a kind of cultural blasphemy by asking for his inheritance. Now, this is troubling for two reasons. Number one, the son had no right to demand his inheritance. And number two, the son was essentially telling his father to drop dead. You see, the only way you would get your inheritance is if your father died. Then it would become yours. By the younger son saying, I want my stuff right now, he's saying, Dad, would you legally die? Can you drop dead so that I can get my stuff? And so the father might not be physically dead, but to the younger son, the father would be dead to him. Now, some of us understand this. Some of us come from homes that are deep with relational pain. And we have bitterness against people who were supposed to be sources of love for us, and maybe they hurt you. And I imagine some of us in this room, a relative that hurts you might not be dead, but they might be dead to you. 
The younger son essentially says, you're dead to me. Now, the father could have said at this moment, what? I'm as good as dead to you? You wish me dead? You wish me to die? You have no sense of shame, son? You have an obligation as a younger son to stay home, to care for your mother and I in our old age. You don't call me dead. I pronounce you dead. Find someplace else to live. The father could have said that. The villagers around would have anticipated the father to say that. But for whatever reason, the father gives his sons the inheritance. And so the younger son gathers the inheritance. He, he rents a U-Haul truck. He packs his stuff. And he goes out into a far country. And the story says that he squanders his wealth in crazy living. He spends it all. He didn't have any good financial sense. Whatever his eyes saw, he bought And after spending his money, it says, there's a famine in the land. He began to be in need, so he needed a job. It wasn't a good job, he found, but at least it paid for the cell phone bill. Sometimes you pay for the cell phone, that's all you'd need. And then after a while, he couldn't even pay for that. He found a job working with pigs. For a Jewish person, this is as low as you could go, working with unclean Animals, And so he was so hungry and poor, it says that he longed to fill his stomach with the slop that the pigs were eating. And so Jesus says that the son comes to his senses. And he says, wait a minute, my father has many servants. I can get a job as a servant. They have plenty to eat. They never go hungry. And so he decides to return home. And as he's returning home, he has a speech for his father. And when he gets on the block near Queens Boulevard, the father sees him and runs to him, embraces him, begins to kiss him. This is extravagant grace. Now, remember, the son has been hanging with pigs. He doesn't smell good. He doesn't look good. And yet the father embraces him. The son probably came home looking like this. And instead, the story doesn't say that the he goes, whoa, get washed up, and then I'll give you some hugging. It says he runs out to him in his filth, kisses him, hugs him, embraces him, and then says, all right, now you can go get cleaned up. This is grace, brothers and sisters, that God sees you and your filth. You and your bad attitude, you and your sins, you and your addictions, you and your hangups, and says, come over here. This is grace. In addition to his appearance, filthy appearance, the father could care less in the story about his motive for coming home. In the story, the son doesn't come home because he realizes, I hurt my father. He doesn't come home because he said, I can't believe I did that. He comes home to survive. He comes home because he knows if I stay out here, I'm going to die. He comes home simply to survive. And whatever the motive for him coming home, the father says, I'm glad you're here. Whatever motive you came to church today, God says, I'm glad you're here. Whenever we come to prayer, God says, just come to me. The son had his own selfish motives to survive, and the father takes him in. And so the father says, hush up, get a bath. I got new clothes for you. We're going to throw a party. He kills the fattened calf and they begin to celebrate. And as the music is going on, the elder brother, the elder son is, comes in a home from a, after a hard day's work. 
and hears music. And it seems like there's a party happening. He looks at the distance and it looks like there's a disco ball inside the house. He's going, what in the world is happening? And as he gets closer, he hears the music. And there's evidently a party happening. And I imagine one of the servants came out. Maybe he was a little tipsy. He just needed a breath of fresh air. And he walks outside of the house. And the elder brother says to the servant, what's going on in here? And the, the servant says, oh, you don't know? He says, there's a party going on right here. <laughs> a celebration. To last throughout the years. So let your good times and your laughter too. We're going to celebrate this party with you. (laughs) Then he said, celebration. He said, listen, it's time to get together. It's up to you. What's your pleasure? Everyone around the world. Come on. Bam, 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 bam. I mean, this man was happy. If you have no clue what I just did, go to YouTube and uh, celebrate. Celebrate. The elder son hears... The news, he hears the singing, he hears the dancing, he sees the disco ball, but he does not want to go inside. He stays outside and the father comes out to get him and he invites him in. And the story ends without us knowing whether he went in or not. Now, I want to show you that this story is really a story about death. This is the surprising angle I want you to see. It's a story about death. The first death occurs at the beginning of the story. The father, in effect, commits legal and cultural suicide. The younger son says, give me my stuff. And the father, as it were, drops dead and gives him his inheritance. The younger son gets his portion. The elder son gets his portion. They put their father out of business. The father is made to die. Second death in the story is the death of the younger son. The younger son experiences a kind of death. After wasting his money and eating from the pig slop, the younger son wakes up dead. He may understand that he has died as a son and lost all claim to his father's love. He's a dead son. Actually, the father says, your brother who was dead is now alive. The third death of the story is the death of the fatted calf. Fatted calf is killed. And so as one commentator said, if he were to sum up the parable, it would be nothing but good news here. The father, the prodigal, and the calf are all dead. They have all been risen. The calf, admittedly, as a veal roast, but you can't get everything. And everyone is having a ball. And Jesus said they began to be merry. But someone in the story has not died. The father's died. The younger son has died. The fatted calf has died. The elder son has not died. And this is what I believe Jesus wants us to see in this passage, that grace only comes to dead people. Grace only comes to dead people. As it's been said, Christianity is not about God making bad people good or good people better. Christianity is about God making dead people come alive. Can I get a witness here? 
Christianity fundamentally is not about God making bad people good or good people better. Christianity at its essence is about God making dead people come alive. The elder son is outside of this party because he refuses to be dead. And the elder son is like us. It was Harvey Kahn who said that the longer you are in church, the more you can resemble the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Because we often refuse to be dead. Now, death is a hard topic for us. Most of us work very hard to avoid talking about death. Yesterday in our home, I saw a little children's book entitled, What Happens When Someone Dies? And instinctively, I wanted to hide the book. Why, 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 why is my daughter reading this? Why, why are we talking about this in the house? And yet, ironically, death is something that's shoved in our faces almost every day. We see it in movies. We read it in the news. We watch social media. It's everywhere. But when it comes to the everydayness and the personal nature of death, most of us work very hard to avoid the issue. We see this even at funerals. There was a pastor who did his dissertation, his his doctoral program on preaching at funerals, and he noted that the great forbidden subject today at funerals is death. Now, historically, church traditions, whenever there was a funeral focus, and they termed it a service for the burial of the dead. But there's been a cultural shift over the years where you never see that language. Instead of seeing a service for the burial of the dead, what we see is a celebration of life. And while I understand the rationale behind it, it just points to the reality that we have a hard time talking about death. Isn't this why many people postpone doing their own wills? Because somehow, superstitiously, they think, if I put a will together, this is just going to accelerate my death. And so let me not do it. We have a hard time confronting. And so we have a hard time thinking about it, talking about it, let alone being about it. But here's the paradox of the kingdom of God. That is to be spiritually dead is, to, is an attempt to make ourselves alive on our own terms. And to be spiritually alive is to make ourselves dead on God's terms. And that's the shift that we see in the story. The elder son refuses to be dead. He refuses to see his own sin. The Bible says we're dead in our transgressions. The elder son has created an identity that's built upon how good he is. He's built an identity based on how dutiful he is. He's built an identity based on him being better than his brother. He has not died. He's basing his righteousness on his good behavior. He's basing his life on his need to be right, his need to be in control. And perhaps the biggest sin of the elder brother is his refusal to see his younger brother in himself. He has made himself alive on his own terms. And we are like the elder brother. Every time we want life done on our terms... We are like the elder brother. But to be dead and to make ourselves dead is to live with a radical understanding of our weakness, of our brokenness, of our sin. To be dead is to put aside our need to control, trusting in the God who brings life. To be dead. Are you dead? You focus on, I'm alive. No, no, but are you dead? 
The invitation is to be dead. Now, I've experienced this over our vacation, what it means to be dead. Rosie planned out our vacation, and, and, and she is the best planner you're ever going to have. She planned every day, every hour. This is where we're going. This is how we're getting there. This is what we're doing. I mean, just fantastic. It was just really wonderful. And so every night, we had an agenda. We had a plan of action. So we go out to Florida. We go out to Disney, and every night was a challenge. You see, our three-year-old son, Nathan, is terrified of fireworks, absolutely terrified of fireworks. We noticed this on the 4th of July. The 4th of July, there's been a resurrection of fireworks in New York. I don't know if you've seen it, but there was a time where there was not a lot of fireworks. Now, I mean, 4th of July, fireworks. And so in our neighborhood, I mean, good fireworks, loud fireworks. And our son was terrified on the 4th of July. And so we were looking for a place to uh, get some refuge so he wouldn't hear all the loud sounds and see all of it. And so I thought, let's go into the bathroom because you couldn't hear as much there. So we go into the bathroom. And Nathan, that night on the 4th of July, made an association. When you go to the bathroom during a fireworks, you find refuge there. So the next few days, whenever he thought there were fireworks, he wanted to go to the bathroom. He'd ask me, Daddy, what time is it? This is a three-year-old. What do you mean? Somehow he knew when it gets dark, fireworks are coming out. So we go out to Florida, and we stay at this resort, and we can see the Disney castle and all that from the, in the distance. And, and he knows, he's seen the commercials, that fireworks happen at that castle. And so I never forget, we walk in and um, we're thinking, isn't this a wonderful view? Look at this. See, every night at nine o'clock, we're going to see some fireworks. And Nathan sees that's where the action takes place. And, er and, and every single night, whenever it got dark, he would say, I want to go to the potty. <laughs> I want to go to the potty. I want to go to the potty. He didn't have to go to the potty. But he associated that's a place of refuge. And so there were times where he would not leave the bathroom no matter what we did. It made for a very frustrating series of nights. What made matters even worse is this. Whenever we went outside and there were fireworks in the middle of the day, somehow there are fireworks in the middle of the day. Whenever the fireworks go boom, 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 he would go, I got to go potty. I got to go potty. I got to go potty. Now, in a crowded area, imagine the terrible parent I looked like when my son is saying, I got to go potty. And I'm going, no, we're not going potty again. They're going, take the kid to the potty. He's got to go potty. Let him go potty. I look like an awful parent. I'm going, well, I told you we're not going. We just went to the potty. I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to see Mickey. I'm doing all that there. He's going, I got to go potty. And God has a sense of humor with all this here. Last week, 
we're going outside. It was late. We had to do something. And I'm driving. It's about 10 o'clock. And it's dark. And he goes, he's get, not getting over his fear. It took about three weeks. getting over. He goes, Daddy, there's no fireworks, right? It's dark. I go, there's no fireworks, son. That's all done. That was the castle. All that we're done. And we get to this spot. We're driving in Long Island. And we get to this stop. And it's the longest red light I've ever experienced. And it's 10 o'clock at night. We stop. And I'm talking to Rosie. And next thing you know, what comes up? Fireworks everywhere. Boom, boom. Boom, 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 like Disney World right in front of us. And I'm going, how is this happening? He's going, I gotta go party. We're not going to the party. I said, I gotta go to the party. I'm going, Jesus, why would you do this to me? Why, why, why would you allow this to happen to me at this moment? Now, at our vacation, a number of times in the evening, I'm looking at this passion, what it means to be dead. What does it mean to, you have your life, you have what you want to do, and then there are things you just have to say, I can't do it. I got to die to this. And multiple times, I'm trying to get the kid out of the bathroom, and God say, no, go in there with him. God, but I'm going to miss out on that. I'll go in. I spent all this money. I'm going to be hanging the whole time in the bathroom. Go in there with him. And it became a sort of death. Are you going to die to your agenda? Are you going to die to what you want? And yet this is the invitation of the passage. We refuse to be dead. The parable of the prodigal son, one of the applications of it is, is are we willing to die to self-will that closes us off to God's grace? To be dead is to lay down a false self that we have constructed. To be dead is to lay down our need to be in control. To be dead is to be vulnerable. To be dead is to be honest about our sin problem. To be dead is to consistently refuse to have the values of the world shape our lives. Isn't this why Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives within me. Paul understood that the only way to life is by being dead. And the question for us is, are you dead? Now we go, no, no, I'm alive in Christ. I understand life is coming, but are you dead? The elder son refused to be dead. To be dead means I refuse to live according to the kingdoms of this world. To be dead means I refuse to be alive according to my own terms. In our interactions with people, to be dead means often not having the last word. I'm just going to die right here. Knowing that God is going to infuse me with some kind of grace. Are you dead? Where do you need to die? Because unless you die, you can't come back to life. Isn't this the story of Christianity? Jesus Christ our true elder brother, the righteous elder brother, is the one who dies. He didn't have to do it, and he did it anyway. And he dies in our place. He dies as our substitute. He dies as the one who pays for our sins. And his death is an invitation for us to follow him. It's, it's what Diedrich Bonhoeffer said. When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them come and die. to Take up your cross and follow me. Where do you need to lay down your way? 
lay down your life so that you can open yourself up to God's grace and power. This is at the heart of repentance. We focus on the repentance of the younger son, but we never see whether the elder son repents. And to repent is to essentially recognize your deadness apart from God. It was Robert Capon who said that repentance involves not the admission of guilt or the acknowledgement of fault, but the confession of death. That apart from God, I can't live. But when I lay down my self-will, lay down my control, I open myself up to a power that only God can give. The world says, live your life. Jesus said, let yourself die. Stop refusing to be dead. And it is only when we say yes to his gracious invitation to do that, that he infuses us with his life. Amen. Let's pray together. The world says, live your life. Jesus says, let yourself be dead. This is the surprise of the kingdom of God. Where is God calling you to be dead? To let go, to open yourself up to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? To lay down agenda and control? Is it in your marriage? Is it in your finances? Is it in your career? Is it in a fear? Is it an addiction? Where is God calling you to be dead? Lord Jesus, we confess today that we often try to make ourselves alive on our own terms. And yet today you invite us to be dead on your terms so that we can truly experience the kind of life we long for. Lord, may we live with openness and vulnerability, with trust, laying down our self-righteousness, laying down our self-will, laying down our need to control everything and everyone. Would you teach us, Lord, how to be dead in such a way that we open ourselves to your life? We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's all stand together. We're going to take communion. And communion is essentially a meal that orients us towards death that leads us to life. We come to the table where Jesus Christ is broken and poured out. And we are invited take into our very beings the life of Christ which flows out of his death and resurrection and so our ushers will, will lead you when you take the bread and the cup we're not just coming to a, a, a table to do some religious act here we are essentially saying Lord this is my me coming against my refusal to be dead so that I can experience true life so let's pray this prayer of um, this prayer of confession together, and then we'll come forward, grab, take the bread, dip it in the cup, go back to your seat, and then I'll lead us to take it together. Let's pray this together. 
Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you through our own fault in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done, in what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. Please come forward. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, And drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's all take together. I want to invite our prayer team to come forward. The cross of Jesus is the symbol of our salvation. And it is the pattern for our lives. And if we want to experience life, this is the countercultural way where we lay down our refusal to be dead, to let go of control, to open ourselves up to God's grace. And this takes the work of the Holy Spirit. This is not just greater willpower, this is the Holy Spirit infusing us, expanding our capacity to be dead so that we can position ourselves for his life so our prayer team is here maybe today you came in and you've never um, you've never been dead before because you've never said yes to Jesus and you've been living life on your own terms and God has never infused his life in you you've never said yes to him because you've never said I'm dead in my sin I'm dead in my transgressions I've never experienced forgiveness and yet this is the message of Christianity that God loves you with an everlasting love he sees all of you and just like the prodigal son the younger brother the father embraces you and wants to transform your life and so if you've never said yes to Jesus maybe you've come to church maybe you've said yes to a church service but you've never said yes to Jesus let him breathe his life into you He wants to forgive you of your sins. We simply have to let ourselves be dead, which is a radical openness to the work of God in our lives. Our prayer team is to my left, and we'd love to pray for you. And maybe you've been dead before. Maybe you say yes to Christ, and yet Christ is inviting you once again to be dead. It was Paul who said in one of his letters, and he was talking about the ongoing persecution and the risk of physical death, he says, I die daily because he recognized every single day was unpredictable. And yet I think that passage there is a good passage for us that yes, we as well are to be dead daily. This is such a countercultural message. And yet it's the surprise of the kingdom of God that as we allow ourselves to be dead, God will raise us up to life. And so whatever you're holding on to, whatever control, whatever, maybe you're like the elder son today, 
God wants to set you free. Our prayer team is here. But as we close, I want to invite you to open your hands to receive a blessing. We close our gatherings like this because the world is filled with cursing. And we walk out knowing that the blessing of God, the favor of Jesus, the companionship of the Holy Spirit is with us. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you. And may he keep you. And may he shine his face upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, allowing yourself to be dead so that Christ can make you alive. And may the Holy Spirit bring application to this message in every aspect of your life, in your marriages, in your friendships, in your home life, in your work life. May we be dead people who experience the life of God. And so I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Grace and peace, everyone.